This is Need to Know. Real talk about the reality of unidentified aerial phenomena. From Australia, Ross Coltart. From the US, Bryce Zabel. Hey everybody, it's uh, Bryce Zabel and Ross Coltart here with, I would like to say a very special edition of Need to Know, but I don't even know if it's an edition of Need to Know, Ross. I mean, what do you? what's your take on that? Oh, I think it should be, mate. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about beer, and and yeah. and as as people say, beer makes men happy. So I think um, uh, let let's just say that this is a very special episode of Need yeah. to Know because we're we're celebrating the fact that we've got two uh, colleagues join us from joining us from uh, the Republic of Ireland who who have been absolutely hearty in helping to promote our new podcast, and um, we want to say thank you to them by doing what. Uh, happy people do and sharing a hearty ale. We should explain two things right now, why we're doing this. And, and secondly, I believe that's Rich Johnson, our producer who just popped yes. in there. Not uh, in nice Ireland. To, nice the, to uh, see you. Not in Ireland. Okay. Republic so of Las Vegas. We, we are really all over. This is great. So just so everyone understands, we got this crazy idea. People kept saying, you know, I'd like to have a beer with uh, Ross and Bryce. So we thought, well, uh, we can do that virtually. Um, and so we sort of had a little contest. Uh, people would tweet and whoever had the most, you know, retweets and all that. Well, we got a winner and uh, we said we would have beer uh, with these people. And the people that we're having beer beers with are, as you said, in Ireland. And there they are now uh, in the blue shirt is Rob Sheridan. And uh, with the headphones is Kieran Corcoran and guys, Congratulations. And Rob, you were the guy that won. Uh, and of course, Kieran is your plus one for tonight. So uh, congratulations. Uh, Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. It wasn't uh, probably the best run uh, contest in the history of contests. Uh, but but listen, uh, I think we all need to start by declaring uh, our drink of the day. Who wants to go first? Yeah, Kieran, you can go first. Well, I'm on to Guinness. Sure to be sure. Uh, of course you are. That makes good sense. So, Rob, what about yourself? Well, I'm a, I'm a rugby fan, so I have to say true. So I'm on the high note. Uh -huh. Oh, my goodness. Not an Irish. Isn't that a Very heresy? interesting. That's yeah. very I'm a West Brit. <laughs> Don't worry. I'll talk to him later. I'll talk to Mark and Michelle. We oh, okay. um, th this is a James Squire pale ale. And James Squire was Australia's first beer maker. Um, he was a convict who was brought out to the colonies for stealing. And uh, he, he, he managed to only, believe it or not, only get 150 lashes for stealing because he, <laughs> he, brewed, he brewed two kegs of beer for the magistrate. So um, th this is a tribute to what makes Australians happy, is the, the first beer maker in the colony. You know, Ross, it's your sense, your impeccable sense of history that makes it so memorable to be partnered with you on this thing. So if he's um, a convict, was he Irish? <laughs> uh, uh, well, is, is Squire's an Irish name? I, I don't know if it is, actually. I, I don't think he is. I think he was English. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Not, not everybody Not everybody who was a convict in Australia ended up being Irish. But um, we Yeah, you've heard that from Ross. Ross, that, thank you for saying that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Rich, what are you drinking in Vegas? I tragically ran out of beer the other day when oh. we made a little spicy Asian food. So I had to go deep in the uh, thing, and I found something my daughter gave me about 15 years ago during some study in Dublin. Irish whiskey oh, nice. in a sock. Irish whiskey it. in a sock. Yeah, I, I have a feeling it's probably an airport impulse buy on her part. But I've had it all this time, and, and we're gonna, you know, I poured out a little bit, and uh, I'll be here in spirit. Yes, spirit, you literally. You're you're in the you're in the uh, NTK bar anyway, and it's it's good. You know, um, I know I'm going to get made fun of for my choice, so I'm going to preface it before I reveal it. All right, because we need we need all the suspense and drama we can get in this thing. Um, I, a few I, like a month ago, I think I wrote an article for the debrief about what an alien intelligence. AI might know about us. And I came to the conclusion that they could suck up all our digital signals and they would know everything about us uh, that was known. I mean, they could have uh, every internet tweet that was ever done and every text that was ever sent and, and every article that was ever written and every book and they'd have everything. And so they would know that when it, that, uh, that 
People on Earth, humans, like to drink a beverage that intoxicates them sometimes or just makes them feel good. But they would know the most popular beer in the entire world is oh, a Bud Light. Oh, now, I'm not saying I'm not saying this is my favorite and only beer, but I am saying that Bud Light in America has 17% of all beer drinking. So if there are any aliens out there intercepting this signal, here's to you guys. Tragically, <laughs> not 17% alcohol by volume. It's by like 0.5, right? So I think that makes it the top-selling beer in the world. I'm not sure, but, but it's certainly one of them. And... Um, Okay, now you can make fun of me. It's okay, we have a description in Ireland of Bud Light. We call it Bud Water. <laughs> I'm with you, Rob. Now, listen, I just want to raise a toast. I want to raise a toast to Rob for being the, the best promoter of Need to Know and for, for, for hawking our shingle around the planet on his social media. So best wishes to you, Rob. So to Rob. And and we're staying up long past uh, Irish closing time. It's, you know, 1 a.m. where you are. It's 5 uh, p.m. for uh, Bryce and myself. And what, are you drinking that beer at 10 a.m., Ross? Is that it? I I am. I do a lot of bad things. (laughs) Which, which, as I understand it, is kind of late in the day for you to get started. Um, (laughs) I know. I'm I'm conforming to an Australian stereotype, basically. You know, drinking beer as soon as I wake up. (laughs) Yeah. So Ross, we have early houses in Ireland, so we kind of an early house, a lot of early house, early house, well, lock in, so to speak. So uh, a lock in would be three o'clock in the morning. So Ross, you're not too far. We're not too far behind you. That's that's true. That's true. Yeah. You're you're having a cure this morning. You know, Kieran. um, A few years ago, I went to um, Ireland with my family, and we went to the um, the um, brewery where Guinness is made, and um, they were kind enough to give my uh, let's see. my 12 year old a beer <laughs> wow. which i uh, which he appreciated more than i did at the time <laughs> I, I have to say uh but it was a great beer it is a great world beer and it's it's uh it's popular as it is for very good reason it's it's yeah it's lovely yeah. it is lovely yeah and i have to tell you uh i wanted to show you something gentlemen um this is what i brought back of course from our ireland trip Oh, Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones literally played at Slane Castle. You guys know Slane Castle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. we do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It it was it was pretty crazy because we went there. It was raining and it was muddy, and there were seventy five thousand people there. And then when the 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 concert was over, I felt like I was walking out with seventy five thousand of my closest drunken Irish friends because we were just as a mass exiting, and um, it was a great night. And um, yeah. and uh, no one served my kid a beer, so that was good too. Um, oh my god, yeah. I have never been slain. Oh, really, Rob? Right? No, no, nope. oh no, never been slain. My friends in slain have stayed in slain, never been slain. Concert, yeah, I've seen, I have I've to say, Guns, Guns and Roses and Metallica were the last bands I've seen there. Absolutely, yeah. the best, coolest place to have a concert, not necessarily the best acoustics, but you know, it's no, a gap. true. It's just it's such a classic venue, I suppose. Just the, the place lane and to be at Slane, but it's not the easiest place to get to or get out of it. Or go, I have to say, no, it, it, it wasn't. I'll tell you, maybe if we go on, I'll tell you the story. But anyway, um, Rob, I'd love it if you'd kind of introduce yourself to the, the people who are drinking in spirit with us right now. You, uh, I've been reading your tweets. You're active on Twitter. Uh, you seem to know a lot about the subject. Uh, what's the story? How did you get into the whole context here? Okay. Uh, God, I'm 44 now, and I started back in the 90s. I was an X-File fan, to be honest. And I've always been curious about what's out there and a very curious scientific mind myself. And I kind of went to college and forgot about it, and then I just fell back into it about six months ago. But it started, it was ignited talking to Kieran one day. We were just talking about Roswell, and we just brought up the subject again because Kieran's a, a Roswell nut and absolutely loves it. I, he gave me a book, started reading it again, and ignited my interest in the whole theme. And then I joined Twitter, and I realized there was a really good community on Twitter for sharing information, and that's, how, that's where I am today. And uh, Kieran, um, you're a Roswell. By the way, have you read the book? Was the book witnessed Roswell by any chance? No, I tell you what the book is. I have the book here, which was this one here. Ah, well, 
That's uh, Don Schmidt and Kevin and Kevin Randall. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And it's one yeah. of the first books. I, I have a witness to Roswell under option along with yeah. Friedman's top secret magic. So I'm a big Roswell nut myself. Tell us about yourself and, and how you got into this. Well, actually, how I got into it was actually through my dad, because my dad had an experience when he was about seven or eight years old. So it would have been 1958, 1959. So my dad had actually witnessed um, an object. Um, if you want, I, I can tell you a little bit about it. Yeah, please. But, um, yeah, so my dad was, he was um, seven or eight years old. So he was living in South Dublin. And what happened to him was he was playing with his, his brother, who was my uncle, um, and my, my dad's uncle, who um, was fixing a bike, bicycle in, in the, in the back, back garden. Um, and they heard a very loud humming sound. It wasn't like an engine. It was more like an electrical hum. And they turned around and they saw a large object. It was, it was a uh, like a cylinder, not like a saucer, but it was as long, almost like a needle shaped. Um, it was hovering above the field. Now, my, my dad's not stupid. Um, wasn't a helicopter, wasn't a, an airplane or anything. And they all got such a fright. My dad's uncle grabbed him and his brother and threw them into the nearest shed, which was a log shed, and kept them there until this thing disappeared. Uh, my dad was desperately trying to get another glimpse of it but he said this thing was huge and um and around that time he had seen an awful lot of objects in the sky uh, he said he used to witness about you know a dozen of these objects flying in the sky they were like giant needles they weren't like airplanes or helicopters he was familiar with all of those um and he used to call his mother out and she used to see them and they'd be really high they dropped down really low and you know, and you'd always believe your parents when you when you asked them something. So I remember having a discussion with my dad before, you know, when I was a kid, and was, we were talking about you know space and everything. And I, I used to say, to him, "Would you ever believe in you know extraterrestrials?" He says, "Yeah, yeah, I do." And he told me about this story, and I was just sort of wow, I was sort of blown away. And it just I always had this interest. And then as I got older and, and, and I heard about Roswell, um, I got really interested in it. And it was around 2006, I think I was watching a documentary or something. I think maybe it was Discovery or something. And I just, it just ignited my interest again. And I was talking to my dad again. And then I just started buying books and reading it. And, um, you know, then things happen in life, obviously, whatever relationships and life story, whatever, children come along and that. And then something would happen and it reignite again. And then I got talking to Rob and was myself and Rob would go for a walk in the evening. We'd be having these conversations and I would give Rob along with the book. And um, Rob is a bit more active on social media now than I would. And he was actually introduced me to you guys. Ah. And um, so I've been listening to a lot of your podcasts uh, a lot lately. And um, yeah, it's just myself and Rob would be chatting and I gave him along with the books and just I've always been interested it's just it's Roswell is a very it's just such a massive story um right. but there's a lot of other stories out there yeah. to be honest with you mm, what was the year uh, do you mind uh, what was the year that your father had that sighting it would have been around 1958 or 1959 he was around seven or eight years old now and, if he said to me if he had a camera it would have been one of the best pictures you'll ever see it was it would have been that close it's wow. funny though, because there's, there's quite a few people who've contacted me who've told me about sightings off the West Irish coast. And yeah. uh, it, it's interesting because uh, I was going back through my files this morning because I'd read about this Calvine UFO uh, photograph from 1990. And I was correlating that some of the sightings on the West coast of Ireland uh, uh, in that time period, 1989, 1990. And enough, a lot of them are that classic, weird, beveled, triangular shape. And um, we live in interesting times because, you know, literally as we're having this broadcast, there's just been this this very new development this morning where Dr. David Clark and Vinny from Disclosure Team and others have published an image of um, a photograph that uh, has resided inside the UK <coughs> Department's archives for 
for decades and and largely been suppressed by the British government. And uh, it's funny because I've got people from Ireland and um, Western Europe and uh, and the UK who've got similar sightings of similar, if not identical, objects in that time period as well. Something's been going on. Yeah, if if you compare the amount of sightings in Europe, excuse me, I'm losing my voice, um, the west of Ireland actually has the highest rating of sightings in Europe outside of France, and that's interesting, on the west coast. So, wow, yeah. really? That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, Ross, uh, the... Ca- is it Calvine, is that what it's called? The Calvine UFO, yeah. It's two right. two two walkers. I, I hear on the rumor on the rumor channel that they were actually people poaching or on a property illegally. But uh, they're two walkers who were in the Scottish Highlands. Um, and as I understand it, where they were is very close to a a, a British airbase called McElrish or McEnrish, I've forgotten exactly how you say it, but it's a very secret aerodrome that the Americans have allegedly used uh, with the RAF, the British Royal Air Force, for many decades. And uh, these two hikers basically sent in to the local (coughs) Scottish newspaper um, a, a photograph and negatives of this image that they captured, which essentially appears to be, and on their description, was a hovering object larger than a fighter jet, uh, being surrounded, actually, by at least one or two alleged fighter jets. And um, the uh, the thing that's interesting about the whole story is that there's been a... David Clark has done some phenomenal work into the British archives in this in the last three decades. But basically, um, I interviewed Chris Mellon, who is, as we know, the former Assistant Deputy Secretary for Defence for Intelligence and Security. And when he was a staffer on the Senate Intelligence Committee in this time period in the 1990s, there was an inquiry that went from the British RAF um, uh, to the American government. And contemporaneously, there were inquiries made in the Congress about whether or not this was American technology. And what's significant about this Calvine UFO story, whether it is or whether it isn't US tech, it's it's demonstrating what appear to be at least some of the five observables. It's showing positive lift without any visible means of propulsion. And according to the testimony of the um, the two people who allegedly <coughs> saw it, um, it took off at extraordinarily high velocities um, shortly after the photograph was taken. And so... If it is something that's demonstrating at least one or two of the five observables, if it's, for example, showing anti-gravity positive lift, that is extraordinary because it begs the question, why has the UK and US government collaborated in conspiring to conceal the fact of this technology for 30, 32 years? And Mm. uh, now that this issue has come out, uh, is it going to be investigated whether Congress was misled? Because um, I know from talking to Mellon when I asked him about this matter, he, he specifically made inquiries as to whether there was, and he was cleared to know whether there was black technology in the possession or knowledge of the United States that conformed to what was mythically described as the Aurora aircraft, or I think the TRT. And it was specifically denied. So has Congress been misled? That's the bigger issue that comes out of this <laughs> newsmaking story from David Clark and disclosure team, whether there has in fact been an intention to mislead the Congress and whether as well, whether the British Parliament was misled. Uh, because there were answers to questions on notice in the British Parliament that were at best evasive. And um, it's really interesting. I mean, again, it's a tribute to good digging citizen journalism. David Clark has basically tracked down a former Ministry of Defence Public Relations uh, 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 media official uh, who was working for the Royal Air Force at the time. And he's, he's basically kept a copy of the photograph, which is absolutely magnificent. And it's a wonderful story because I'm fascinated by the image because if you remember at the beginning of the documentary that I did last year, there was a young woman who described a uh, lenticular but vaguely triangular shaped <clears throat> 
that bears some resemblance to this object. And it does beg the question whether what we're talking about here is something that, in fact, is black American technology that has been specifically and possibly illegally withheld from the knowledge of the Congress for three decades, maybe longer. Um, and uh, it really does raise a new question, you know, whether this is technology that is in possession of either the US or the British or some other allied government or or whether they were photographed in, inadvertently circling the object with their fighter jets, um, it not being human tech. We, we just don't know. We don't know enough about this object. But hopefully now, as a result of good citizen journalism by David Clark and others, we'll get to the bottom of it. I, I'm joining a lot of the dots at the moment because I'm, I'm trying to figure all this out because Gary Nolan mentioned um, on uh, Tucker recently about the events that happened in the UK back where the United States Air Force was in partnership with the British Air Force. I think he was talking about Rendlesham. I'm, I've just That's done correct. A, right, Rendlesham. Yes. Yeah. Was what year was that? 1980. And in fact... I, I I I think Carlson got it wrong. He's or not Carlson, but um, Nolan. He said 1981. I think is what he called okay. it. Or 79. He was wrong. It's 1980. It was Christmas um, and Christmas Eve and the day after in 1980. I'm pretty sure yeah. it was 1982 that event happened. That was the Rendlesham Forest. I'm pretty sure it was December 1982. I, I don't think so. I think it's 80. But yeah. you know what? We can figure. Well, this is a good. Yeah. This is I'm a good thinking game. Whoever's wrong. You're right, Bryce. It was 1980. And the, the reason why it's interesting is because the uh, Cash Landrum incident happened right. within days of yes. that 1980 sighting. And that's the fascinating thing is that um, the, the thing that's interesting about the Cash Landrum incident, which took place in the United States, is that, again, it also featured the suggestion that there might have been American military uh, helicopters uh, involved in an attempted recovery or, or rescue of whatever this object was. Need to Know continues in a moment. It's a really interesting time because we're getting to the stage now, and I'd, I'd love to know, uh, Rob and Kieran, what you guys think. Uh, we're, we're getting to the stage now where the volume of interest and the volume of reporting on the phenomenon, whatever it is, um, it is now getting such a momentum that it's getting into mainstream media. I mean, the good thing about the Calvine story today is I've seen it in the London Sun, a, a British tabloid newspaper. It's in the, the London Daily Mail. It hasn't made the pages of the august and respectable London Times, but it may well yet. But it's enormously significant that this is a breakthrough story that's getting into legacy media because this is a story that's largely tracked, as Rob and Kieran, I'm sure, would agree, in social media, Twitter, Facebook, you know, the yeah. various Reddit UFO feeds. And it's largely been marginalised because of that. But this is an inordinately important story because what this goes to is a cover-up. And often what happens in in the military that undoes them is their attempts to conceal something. And I was rereading David Clark's excellent work this morning. He's done a three-part series about Calvine going back to June. And I've been aware for some time that this story was coming and that this photograph was imminent. But what's important, what mustn't be overlooked, is that David's pieced together that there was a British denotice issued. Uh, essentially a suppression order issued by the British government to gag coverage of this issue. And the question is whether this denotice was directed at the Scottish newspaper that was given a copy of the photographs. And if that's the case, why? Why was there a suppression order issued that legally gagged a newspaper from showing a piece of technology which has categorically been denied by the United States government as being US technology. If this is US technology, and this is the bigger story here, it's the cover-up, not the actual fact of the photograph. If this is US technology, Congress has been misled. It's been lied mm. to. 
But if it wasn't U.S. technology, Congress has still been misled. Exactly. You were talking about Congress not being told the truth. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that Congress hasn't been told the truth over the years uh, about some of this stuff, for sure. You know, I just wanted to ask uh, Kieran and uh, Rob, what do you guys think is going on? I mean, I'm just curious, as you look at the big, you know, you hear this, Ross is talking about this particular case, fascinating case, breaking today. Uh, you've been listening to the uh, podcast, Kieran, and you said, you know, we've talked about all kinds of things you've been reading. It's enough to make you go crazy. It's enough to make you say, I give up. I'm going home. I, there's no way I can ever figure this thing out. And yet we all probably lay, a bet, lay awake in bed at times and think, what is really going on? So I'm going to throw it to you guys. Rob, what's your take? What's going on? Yeah, I was down that rabbit hole and I remember listening to George Knapp on, um, oh, it was a podcast. Who was it? It was uh, Joe Rogan. Anyway, he was talking about going in the rabbit hole. And look, I, I, I would be very scientific in terms of the way I look at things and I'd have an evidence-based point of view. I personally believe there's a back engineering project going on. I think they have technology. I don't know whether they found aircraft from another civilization, but they definitely uh, have some technology that they're back engineering. And I think that brings me down to Ross. I think you'll, you'll agree with me on this one, the whole Wilson Davis memo. And I think you quoted the Admiral Wilson clause, and that seems to be propping up more and more. Um, Gary Nolan seems to be mentioning it as well. People seem to be sliding it under the under the table, but it's the likes of of you know Gary Nolan and the likes of um, Jeremy Corbell that are, are kind of pushing this out a little bit. And there's credence behind this. And I'm joining the dots. And for what you're saying there, Ross, I think there's definitely a back engineering. Um, and just to just to emphasise what you're saying there, Rob, the significance of the Admiral Wilson document in the context that you're talking about and in the context that Professor Gary Nolan is talking about is that there's speculation, and there has been for some time in this memo, that fundamentally, if there is recovered non-human technology, and that's what we're talking about, alien technology. I know it's breathtaking in its implications, but if there is recovered non-human technology, the speculation is that it was deliberately removed from the control, direct control of the US military and intelligence services and placed into private aerospace as a way of concealing it and evading the scrutiny of freedom of information laws and government oversight watchdogs, such as the government accounting office and the various intelligence committees and uh, armed services committees in the in the Congress, and th the question has to be asked: if that's if that's the case, clearly crimes have been committed, unless mm -hmm. there's some presidential order, executive order that exonerates everybody involved. But then you have to ask why? Why would that be the case? And I actually am beginning to think, despite my pessimism in recent years, I'm beginning to think that this may all soon come rolling out. What do you think, Rob? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think 100%. And that's, I remember I texted you recently about, you know, the, the closed hearings and what does that mean? You were able to break that down for me. It made perfect sense. If there was crimes to be committed, it would have to be behind closed doors. Um, and whatever evidence they have that is palatable to the public, they release it and they would drip feed it. I think there's a, to be honest, I think there's a bit of a, a drip feeding process going on here. There's so many dots at the moment that are coming together that are joining to create this picture that there could well be technology from somewhere else that's been back engineered. And again, a lot of people cringe when I mention his name, but the Bob more Lazar. Bob Lazar. Yeah. yeah. I, now I'd love to know what Chris Mellon said to Joe Rogan offline about Bob Lazar. Um, did Bob Lazar hang around the, the, the infamous bar where people spoke about, you know, special access programs Well, you pick up an awful lot, but George Knapp doesn't remember the whole Bob Lazar story from many, many years ago. Yeah. And everyone thought he was crazy and, and whatnot. Like, but I, I don't know. I mean, there has to be some sort of credence given to him, you know, because he, he's still stuck with his, his story. And when he explains his whole back engineering and everything that he's seen, it's, uh, it's, it's it's hard not to. It's, I find it hard not to believe sometimes, even though it's sometimes it's just sounds a bit crazy. It's uh, I don't know. You Here's know, the thing. Here's sorry, yeah, guys. Yeah. My no, argument would be: thirty years ago, back in the eighties, we didn't have social media. Okay, so you know it, it was it was hard to remember or to go back 
and say what you said in a lie because you can get caught up in a lie. It gets big and big and big. Bob Lazar's story has been consistent throughout. Yeah. Consistent throughout. And the, the fact that he he went on Jeremy with Jeremy Corbell on a podcast kicking and screaming and paid his own ticket to fly there. This guy is not a nut. He, he, he I don't know. I know, Ross, you would probably argue the case about, you know, the credence of his education and, and what does that mean? I, I, I don't know. Maybe you don't need to have an education. Maybe he's just a genius. He put, he made a rocket on the back of a. Mate, he uh, wouldn't be. He wouldn't be the first bloke that bullshitted about his CV. Yeah, you know? exactly. exactly. So, Ross, where do you come down? As well, like. my friend, where, where do you come down? Bob on? Yeah. Look, I've, I've set this out in my book, but basically, I'm agnostic on Bob. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I guess um, I find him fascinating and compelling, and uh, you know, f- for the superficial use that it is, I don't see dissembling or evasion or lies, and I'm, I'm impressed that he's been able to pass multiple uh, lie detector tests, although they, they are flawed. But I do have an issue with the fact that, um, you know, there are aspects of his claimed educational record that don't make a lot of sense. Um, he claimed, yeah. I think, at one stage to have a master's from Caltech and, and MIT, and that's not borne out by any academic documents. But um, is it possible that he was just tricking it up and and maybe he had a chip on his shoulder about the fact that he didn't have a formal qualification when, in fact, he's um, innately gifted with something that the United States military understood was useful to them. I don't think that's impossible. And I, I spoke before he died to a lovely man called Dave Fruhoff uh, during my research who um, at the time was only prepared to speak confidentially, but um, Dave uh, is a former um, SR-71 Blackbird pilot and um, he ended up working at Area 51 uh, in the period after Lazar said he was working there. But Dave basically confirmed that he spoke to people who were aware that uh, Bob Lazar did travel on the Janet Airlines plane to Area 51. And more importantly, Dave confirmed to me privately uh, that um, he was aware of the existence at Dreamland, uh, Area 51, of, of a location called S4, the location of which has long been in question. Mm. So there are aspects of Bob's story that do check out. And needless to say, I mean, uh, one of the things you watch out for in investigative journalism is disinformation designed to discredit someone. And it is fascinating to see how there have very clearly been efforts by the U.S., to discredit Bob Lazar over the years. Um, he was dragged through the courts on a quite spurious case of, um, I think he was involved in helping fund a brothel or something like that. It was a very weird criminal charge that he faced. And um, frankly, uh, it had the whiff of something designed to discredit someone. Uh, I, I, like you, Bob and Kieran, I watched the whole uh, Bob Lazar, Jeremy Corbell exchange with Joe Rogan, and I thought it was compelling. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, whilst I can't vouch for Bob Lazar, I don't have any way of independently being able to verify what he says. I can say that there are aspects of Mr. Lazar's story that I've been able to independently verify with solid sources. And indeed, more privately, people who aren't prepared to go on camera or speak on the record have, have said to me that I should take Lazar more seriously. And they've had a go at me about the fact that in the book, I um, I don't come down in favour of what he said. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, I just don't know. I, but I, you I, know, Ross, that's one of the reasons people like your book so much, because you you don't come down on everything all at once. You, you you take a look at it. You know, it's interesting. Um, I have two comments. First, I'm the only one on their second beer. Okay. So, uh, and I'm the only one who showed their beer off. I'm getting there. Um, but um, but that's not what I wanted alcohol. to say. There's probably more alcohol in Kieran's Guinness than about a case of Bud Light. <laughs> I think that's probably true. I think that's true. Here's what I would say about the Lazar thing that I think is kind of an in- intriguing thing because we've all commented on it. I remember when I first heard it, I wanted to believe it, but I was like, well, it's kind of hard to believe it because, first of all, the government is telling us that there's nothing to see here. And uh, and people that believe in any of this stuff like I did at the time uh, were were pretty much dis- discounted. 
But today we live in a time where the government has actually said, yeah, this stuff is real. Uh, they're not saying necessarily who's making it, but they're not discounting that it exists. So if it exists, then a lot of other things that we put aside and said, well, we can't really look at those. I mean, who knows? But a lot of that stuff now has to be looked at in a different way because the, the United States government alone has already said, you know, we're, we're buying into this stuff. So Lazar, I, I, listen, I'm a big fan of George Knapp. Uh, he's a ter tremendous reporter and I take, take it seriously that he believes so clearly in the Lazar story. So I, I give it a lot of uh, credence and credibility, but again, we won't know until we know. And, and I believe it's possible that in a disclosure environment, we are going to learn something about the Bob Lazars of the world. I'd love to know, Rob and Kieran, what you guys think. I, I, I don't want to sound like an apologist for the military and the intelligence community, but I, I've tried to sort of put myself in the position of a president or a, a head of the armed forces in the United States who's, who's become aware. Let's assume hypothetically that the US did recover something at Roswell and other crashes in, in the period from 1947. And let's assume that there has been a back engineering, reverse engineering effort underway for, you know, all of 75 years minimum. If that's the case, I think I would have kept it secret. And if necessary, right. as president, I would have gone to great efforts to make sure that it did evade the scrutiny of much of Congress, because let's be brutally honest, Congress leaks. You know, Congress can't keep its mouth shut. You know, yeah. it, it really well, well, that's true. And, and I think, you know, if you look at Roswell, um, America had just gone through World War II. Um, they'd just gone through, well, Roswell had just been, we had been used for testing nuclear. Uh, we just dropped bombs on nuclear, uh, nuclear bombs on Japan. So at that time, and America just just had just recovered from World War Two. So I just with your, if you had recovered that type of machinery, and you're, you're not going to want to disclose it to your your enemies or other countries. You're going to want to look at it and analyze it and and see how you could use it for your benefit. So it definitely. But you know, you Kieran, know. not only would they want to analyze it to see if they could look, find a benefit for themselves, I think there's either some, there's something else that may be the super explanation, which is they weren't sure at all what it was, right? And well, that was true and, at and, the time. And yeah. they probably figured, well, we need to study this stuff. We need to figure out what we're dealing with. And eventually this is going to get out. I always thought they might think, at, at Roswell, well, we've got a few years. We can probably keep this contained for a few years. We kept Hitler from understanding where we were going to have the D-Day invasion. Maybe we can use some of that stuff and, and mm -hmm. try to keep this. But I don't think any of the architects of secrecy from those years would would could even comprehend if they were alive today that this thing had kept on so long. But, but the, the only one thing I wanted to just run back to for you two guys it isn't just the United States. In fact, the fact that Ross and I have this podcast is a, an example of what we're trying to say visually, verbally, in every way we can. It's a global phenomenon, all right? It's not just yeah. the United States. It's not just anybody. I mean, what have we talked about today? Uh, Ross has got this British case that he was talking about with the, with the photo. Um, you know, yes, the United States has been deeply in the thick of it, but not the only ones. So I just wanted to ask you guys, do you have any specific um, – uh, information about how the Irish government has looked at this issue over the years? God, you know what? Oh, Karen, do you want to go first? Do you know what? <laughs> to say, for instance, right, my dad yeah. had reported that case. I'd say if he had, because we wouldn't have even had a phone back then, you would have had to cycle to the village, phone the police. They'd probably say, look, we'll send someone down on a bicycle. There just wouldn't have been mm. anything, to be honest mm. with you. Um, mm. No, I think back then the Irish government would have been serious lacks of days. What does the Irish but, government think today? I don't think they would really, they, they wouldn't have the capabilities, right. to be honest with you. We don't have experts in any, any field. Yeah. We don't, our Minister of Health wouldn't have been an expert in health. You know, our right. minister of defense would not be a minister of defense. We're too small. We don't have the expertise. Everything has to be, um, we need third party 
expertise, basically. I, I think there's a general fascination with the whole subject in itself. And I think my, my mate Gordon, who couldn't be here tonight, he, he's been in touch with Jeremy uh, back and forth because they interviewed Jeremy on, on Irish television recently just to bring the subject matter to the Irish public and um, kind of to remove that stigma. And that goes back to what you were saying, Ross, there, like the removal of the tinfoil hats. It's, it's beyond the fringe now. It's now starting to come into to media. And talking to friends of mine, I think there's a bit of a stigma in Ireland when it comes to stuff like that. We're only just I think yeah. that's fading, though. Now. I think that's starting to disappear, though. It is, but back in the day, it yeah. was like, you know, I, I mean, my my uncle, my oh, sorry, my granddad was a farmer, and I'd say to him, you ever see a ghost in a field or an apparition? He said, the only thing I saw, I've never seen anything worse than myself in a field. And if you saw something, you were either coming back from the pub at three in the morning, you had too much Guinness, you know, and people just laugh off. Stay with us. We're back in a moment because you need to know. When Bryce and I were talking about the ghost rockets <clears throat> in the 1940s, you know, the ghost rockets that were seen across Scandinavia, Maybe, yeah. um, I was contacted by a guy from County Kildare in the Republic of Ireland called Adrian Meany. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me using his name. And he had done some great work where he dug out some old Department of Defence in Ireland files that showed that in July 1947, there were sightings of ghost rockets all over Ireland. And, wow, uh, that's interesting. And, and basically, um, wow. uh, th- there was a, a story that ended up in the, um, the Irish Times. But, but basically, there were, I think there were priests who'd seen these weird ghost rockets. They occurred not just in Poland and the Mediterranean, but um, he, he let me know that in the Irish UFO files, there were flying disc reports from July 1947 and a rocket article witnessed in two locations independently by three Irish priests. And he sent me some of the reports, and um, they included statements from the priests about what they'd seen. And uh, the fascinating thing was, um, uh, you know, it was reported, but as often happens, a bit like happened in New Zealand where I grew up, these things were just basically ignored and buried because I think everybody found it so uncomfortable. Yeah, just like the the, the, the Marines, or just like the, the mm. US military. I mean, they've only just started to develop an infrastructure where you can report it up and, and collect the data. We don't have the infrastructure to collect the right. data. I'm sure we have things flying over us. I mean, they said this, that the stats out there suggest that we do have the highest level of sightings. People are talking about them, but we don't have the infrastructure to, to capture it and take it the way the, the United States or the larger, the Five Eyes are... are capturing the data so it's it's like we're caught in the middle you know know, there's one other connection though that we should make to to ireland i mean if you take a look at what jacques valet and people uh who have been trying to come at this from another point of view they Mm -hmm. they have said that when you specifically about sightings and abductions that a lot of the stuff that is now attributed to the sort of the ufo alien explanation has been going on for centuries and thousands of years, specifically in places like your own country, gentlemen, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. where there, there were reports of fairies and gnomes and all kinds of things, right? So I just wonder if you have any thoughts about that, because clearly, um, you know, people are referencing your country as a place where, you know, maybe these weren't all fairies, maybe these weren't all mythical kind of things maybe there was something going on have you ever thought about that issue me big time Newgrange is a massive thing for me Newgrange is 2000 years before Christ and they managed to be able to figure out where the sun rose and where it came in at a certain point of day where it was able to open up the chamber yeah. I mean where did they find the science to be able to figure that out then you look at the pyramids mm. where did they get the engineering to do that it's it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So in terms of Newgrange, I'm like, maybe like there's so many theories out there. There's so many different hypotheses, like Putoff's ultra terrestrial hypothesis. Um, I find that fascinating. You know, you, you look at the the UFO crash there in Roswell. Is it a crash? Is technology that so good it's going to crash, or was no, it left there? Well, was it left there I, to be discovered? You, you, oh, did you mean something about, else? Did you mean like missing persons or? mythology or what was that was that what you meant or yeah yeah exactly that's what i was talking about yeah 
Look, can Florida. I just point out, Robert, I, 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 I've only just recently heard about Newgrange, and um, you really? just mentioned it there. And I, the thing I found fascinating about Newgrange is that it's older than the Egyptian pyramids and mm. Stonehenge. And it's in um, I mean, but whereabouts is it? Maybe just tell our, our listeners and our viewers what, what you know about it. Newgrange is in, it's in County Mead. It's a Neolithic tomb. Um, Neo meaning new life, I think. I could be wrong. And on the there's a capstone on the outside of Newgrange, and it's a burial tomb. And it's it's a circle with one chamber going through it, and it's where they bury their dead to 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 be worshipped kind of like the um, pyramids. And during the winter solstice, the, the sun would rise and it would beam in through the chamber and light up the whole chamber. And for something that's 2,000 years older than the pyramids to know where the sun would rise at that moment in time to, you know, illuminate the chamber is amazing. Mm. It's one day a year. It's amazing. Mm. And they have these circles that don't, it doesn't end. It's a continuous circle. So that represents life. Life is ongoing, continuous. Mm. It's It's like a Trinity design. Yes. Uh, Gentlemen, we we live in the world of regulations. We got about five minutes here. So what I want to do is I want to throw it to you guys. What do you, uh, is there something you want to say? Do you want to ask? Ross or myself, anything? What you know? What make it your own here? You got five minutes. What do we? What do? You, what do you want to get out here? Yeah. Well, just just quickly. I mean, there's. We always talk about Roswell, and I know, but um, there's been reports of so many crash sites, and I'm just wondering, do you guys know of any other details about that? And I have specifics because I have also a little book called dark object mm. and it's about shag harbor i'm not sure if you've heard yeah, about that one absolutely shag harbor yeah also i've heard of two crash sites in brazil and another one another book because mm. i tell you i got a little buzz on the books at one stage another one in brazil and it just seems to be so many crash sites but so little detail in the media or social media well, I'd, I'd, be keeping, I'd be keeping an eye out for James Fox, our good friend and colleague, James Fox's forthcoming right. film, <clears throat> um, because he's been in Brazil and we know he's been investigating. It's, it's the How do you say it, Bryce? Varginha? I, I think Varginha. I, I, I mean, I, you and I have probably screwed it up in more innovative ways than anyone I know, but uh, let's go with Varginha right now. <laughs> and um, I got pretty fascinated with the um, Aztec uh, alleged crash uh, with Scott right. and Suzanne Ramsey uh, in New Mexico because that that's fascinating and mm-hmm. um, I mean I think Roswell has largely been um, given a large degree of the prominence and, and largely because yeah. I think the US Air Force did did its own investigation and I mean I mean no doubt whatsoever that there was a cover up with Roswell and that there probably was something other than a weather balloon retrieved but just exactly what that was is still to me at least a, a formal mystery. But yeah, I mean there are there's a there's a cluster of alleged crashes, including, as I've recently discovered, a, a couple of alleged incidents in Australia that I'm investigating at the moment. Interesting. Karen, oh, interesting. Um, Karen I'd be interested in your your since you've you seem to have dialed in on the the crash issue. My question for you is be, the question that we get asked a lot. People say, "Well, if these aliens or whoever they are are so smart and so technically proficient, why are they building things that are crashing? Exactly. What's your take on that? What's your answer when, when friends ask you? That? Well, I've never actually been asked that, but yeah, but it's an interesting question. I mean, if I go back to Roswell, I've no idea how or why they would have crashed. I've just, I've, I've no take on it, to be honest with you. I really don't. Um, and the fact that if, you know, just to go off, sorry, just off subject, but when you talk about, um, say, the uh, the Nimitz, the Tic Tac um, UFOs, where um, I can't remember the name of the guy that was on Twitter. He was saying that they were there a long time, okay? Yeah. How are they there a long time? Like, how are they fueled to be here so such a long time? Like, he said they could be there, like, decades so how are they being fueled and if there's something inside them how are they surviving that that that'd be my sort of my thinking um so your your answer to the question is more questions 
because I know, I know, which, but which how, I think, if they're crashing, the way, it's hard to know how they're crashing. You know, it could be atmospheric, <sighs> it could be, it could be anything. To be honest with you, um, I have a theory. Weather related. You have a theory. Uh, I'm not sure All right, well, let's yeah. let Rob have his theory. Yeah. Rob, okay, Rob, to answer, it, please. To answer your question, apparently it's element one fifteen that is that is uh, you know uh, the means of fuel to propel these things into negative gravity at one eighty degrees. But I don't know. Maybe the maybe these guys want us to leave us a bit of technology to to work on, and it's like there you go. It's like what did they say? What did Bob Lazar say? It's like dropping a, a, a I don't know a Ferrari in in the eighteen hundreds and saying there you go. There's the keys. Have a go and see if you can work it out. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's a process of evolution. But I, I have one question for Bryce actually, mm. if you don't mind. No, please. Um, Bryce, are you familiar with the memo of Davis Wilson memo? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I, 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 you can you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe it was was it Wilson that mentioned that abductions were just a farce. Um, I don't know, but I'm interested in on because I know you've done extensive research on on Barney. Yeah, absolutely. Barney Hill's abduction yeah. and Betty. What what is your take on that? Do you think these abductions are real, and what for what reason? Well, I I think. I think you have to say that, well, first of all, you have to define real. Um, They're real in that some, something has happened to somebody that they're reporting in, in that way. Okay. So on Betty and Barney specifically, it seems pretty clear just from listening to them describe it and, and what they went through in the immediate aftermath that that night they did see something that was pretty extraordinary. All right. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm will now where it came from, what it was, who knows. Then you get into level two with Betty and Barney, which is the stuff that they said uh, under hypnosis. And, you know, there is division of opinion. And certainly the story they tell is not, you know, uh, consistent with everything that every other abductee has ever said. Um, <clears throat> I think abductions are the hardest part of this thing right now, to be honest with you, Rob. Uh, mm-hmm. We, we, have no consensus yet on whether there's even craft. So the idea of abductions, but um, if if abductions are in fact an authentic thing, that would explain a great amount of why people are so cautious about wanting to disclose what's really going on. Because uh, if if abductions are going on in some way, shape, or form, and the governments of the world can't stop them, well, that's not something they probably want to talk about. Um, I mean, I. I I, if I had to bet, and, I, and Ross and I may even disagree on this. I don't, I don't act, know where he comes down. If I had to bet, I'd say the Betty and Barney case is an authentic case. Um, however, uh, I'm able as a skeptic to come up with alternate uh, explanations for Betty and Barney. And I, I'll just give you one and move on. But one of them is they were on vacation in Montreal. Uh, on their honeymoon and Montreal in 1961, when Betty and Barney were there, was the home of MK Ultra, the military's mind control program. I, I'm not saying that I know any direct connection, but there it is. That's a possibility. And and if you're trying to pick people uh, to experiment on uh, who won't go running to the press, uh, an interracial couple in America in 1961 would be a pretty yeah. good couple to pick on. So I agree. that's kind of how I come down on, on that one. Yeah, I agree. And I like the fact that you mentioned that they experienced something. Yeah. And I think, well, I mean, it's really, I mean, to listen to the hypnosis tapes is extraordinary and, and mm. powerful, but again, um, it was after the fact Betty had been having dreams. She obviously wanted to believe Barney didn't want to believe, um, you know, I'm not saying that married couples can't transfer impressions about what they think about things to each other. Obviously, they can. I mean, well, at least I'm married. I my wife transfers a lot to me. Uh, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, who knows? I mean, uh, but but I look forward to a disclosure environment in the next few years that takes on the the sort of the the military and the national security and the things flying in the sky aspect. And as disclosure goes on there are documents that we have not seen there may be a betty and barney hill document hidden away someplace that may explain all this someday can i ask one question yeah for both of you yeah and kieran do you think 2023 it's a two-part question do you think 2023 is going to be the year for disclosure and if so are we ready ross you go 
Um, I do think that there are going to be major revelations even before 2023. I think there is, I've just come back from the US and I think there is a momentum in the US Congress where I'm super impressed by the resolution of key figures in the Congress and the Senate and the House of Reps to, to basically get this issue brought before committees, at least in private hearing where, where witnesses are deposed. And I'm aware of moves to get key witnesses before the Congress. Uh, I know uh, just recently, of course, Kevin Day has flagged that he's about to be a, be called to come before, I think, the Senate Armed Services Committee. But I'm aware also of other key people, none of whom anyone knows the names of, who are being approached to give evidence about things that I think if they are given an opportunity to testify, even if it's in a preliminary private hearing, will be momentous. And um, uh, I, I can't guarantee that it will happen in 2022, but I suspect it will definitely happen in 2023. Part, part of the issue, frankly, is that there's been so much time and resources dedicated to the 6th January hearings about the insurrection against the Congress that um, it's been very hard to, to get the media to focus on anything else. But I, I think also, frankly, speaking of somebody who works in the mainstream media, I, I, I think also that what you might see in 2023 is the beginning of the begrudging acknowledgement by the mainstream media, the legacy media, that they have completely failed to cover this issue properly up till now. And that you're going to see an engagement like there's never before, especially because the Congress will leak. If there are private hearings where witnesses are deposed, and we know that there already have been, I, I think that eventually that evidence is going to make its way to the national security and defence reporters in Washington, in New York, in LA, and eventually it'll start getting written about. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, well, it, you're a lucky man, uh, Rob, because uh, you've caught me on my second beer, and um, I'm – I'm probably more willing to be a little. Here's the thing, uh, you know, I wrote a book about. Uh, here's to you, my friend, uh, even if it's a Bud Light. You know, I wrote a book with Richard Dolan about disclosure. All right, that's right. And um, so I would define big D disclosure as when somebody official says something that comes steps up to the line of "we're not alone." I don't care if it's the Pope or the President or the Prime Minister. Right. When somebody official is willing to say that out loud, that's big D disclosure for me. We're clearly in a period of confirmation sliding into small D disclosure right now. I think we're going to have the twilight period of 2023, 2024 of the small D, uh, an accretion of, of things like Ross bringing up the Calvine thing. Every day, every month, there's going to be something new. And, and people that are wired into it, as you are, and probably people who are watching this, are going to feel like disclosure has happened. But the, the rest of the population will not share this opinion. I, I think the presidential election is a pretty big deal. And so, therefore, um, I, I think it may come up in presidential debates as a question, uh, which would be groundbreaking. Um, but I think 2025 is when I feel like big D disclosure may be sort of in, in the works. Um, and, and I, and I, and, but, you, but I think the second part of your question is the interesting one. Can we handle it? And, and Rich Dolan and I spent an entire year thinking about that and it, more people are talking about it now than ever before. And, and I guess the only good answer is what Ross and I came up with, uh, I think just last week on our episode, it's like, can they handle it? Well, I don't know, but they're going to have to. I mean, you know, we're, it's, it's, it's coming. Some, something is coming, and we're, we haven't yet figured out exactly how we'll handle it. And partly the reason is it depends on what disclosure is. If you just disclose to me that some friendly alien scientists are buzzing around in the skies and, and taking some samples of flora and fauna, I think people would be, okay, I'm on with my life. But if you disclose what you, your previous question was, which is, human beings have been abducted and experimented on and the government can't do a thing about that. Well, that's different as they say. So yeah. I, I, but I do think we are in a radical uh, changing time. And, and uh, if we were to do this thing again in two years, it'd be pretty shocking. 
Can I just add yeah. something to that? I, yeah. I think in, in light of the culture that we're, we're living in at the moment, the world is smaller, we're, we're more materialistic. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think how we react comes down to how much is this going to affect us? Are you, how are you going to react? Exactly. Me? Well, what are, what would, how would your family react? Are you married? But, yes. And what she, would your wife she, say she, about this? She, she was down the rabbit hole on this for years. And she said to me, I, I told her everything about the Nimitz and all the scientific stuff. She goes, yeah, so what? So what? Is it affecting me? No, I still have to pay my bills. So <laughs> it's a good yeah. answer. It's I a good think answer. that's, uh, listen, guys, this has been uh, super fun and uh, probably the first of others that we'll do. And I'll even pick a different beer next time. Um, <laughs> but I did want to pick the most popular. I thought that was, that was a good Good thing that the aliens might know. Not bad, not bad. And and, and listen, uh, uh, Ross and I want to thank Rob Sheridan and Kieran Corcoran because this was this was really fun. And um, and you know, uh, obviously, we want to thank you, Rob, because you were the thank guy you. that actually said, "I'm going to actually try to 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 do what this uh, silly contest was all about." I'm drinking to you. Let's drink to disclosure, whatever it is, and hope it's coming fast. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Slaunch you guys. Take care. Need to Know is a joint production of Stellar Productions and Powerful Owl Productions. I'm producer Rich Johnson, and you can learn more at needtoknow.today. That's needtoknow.today.